Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that drama where you know you probably need to say something to a friend or a loved one, but you're not quite sure you want to do it or how to do it, and uh, so you kind of just hope it'll go away? Well, the truth is, if you're a human being, you have found yourself in situations like that at some point, and if you haven't yet, you certainly will. And the question is, what should we do? What do we do in moments like that? Or how about I ask that from another angle? Have you ever been on the other side of that drama and have someone confront you about your attitude or behavior? How do you respond to that? Are you glad they did it? Or does it make you angry? Those are the questions I want to address together this morning as we continue our summer series called Unsung Heroes. If you haven't been with us the last three weeks, we are in the middle of a series where we are looking at what it means to be a hero from God's eyes. In today's age, superheroes are all the rage, Uh, but we're discovering from God's word what a hero looks like to him. And we've looked at people uh, like Ananias, who was a hero simply because he was available to be used by God and join him in his work. And then the last two weeks, we've seen how Hosea is a hero because he was faithful even in difficult times. And then last week, Pastor Lee did a great job showing us how Jonathan is a hero because he was a loyal friend to God. And the goal of this series has been to say and suggest that when we display those types of traits and qualities in our life, we too can live heroically in God's eyes. This morning I have the privilege of speaking about another of my personal unsung heroes in the Bible. His name is Nathan. And interesting, just like Jonathan from last week, Nathan was a loyal friend to David. In fact, I was thinking about this this week, looking up at the banner, that three of the eight characters we're going to be studying in this series are directly related to David. And I kind of wonder, what does that say about David? It tells us that he sure knew how to surround himself with the right kind of people, didn't he? And I wish I could say that Lee and I planned it this way, but it just kind of worked out because uh, this message couldn't follow any better than last week. If we discovered last week that a hero is someone who is a loyal friend, what we're going to talk about this morning is that part of being a loyal friend is being willing to speak the truth to those we love, which is what God is going to ask Nathan to do with David. We say here at our church, we're learning to love the Lord, love one another, and serve the world. And if you're following on your notes this morning, part of loving one another means speaking the truth in love. Part of loving one another means speaking the truth in love. As we're going to see, Nathan found himself in a situation very similar to the one in that drama, though on a much bigger scale, and he knows that God is calling him to speak the truth to David, even though it could cost him dearly. But Nathan knows that's what part of loving one another really is. So if you would, take your Bible and turn it with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is about a quarter of the way in your Bible if you're still getting used to where things are. And if you are following along in the Black Bibles, that's on page 215. Now before we actually take a look at this story, I just have to mention that this is an incredibly delicate and tricky and sensitive subject. Uh, So I hope it's okay as as we uh, talk about speaking the truth that we invite God uh, into this conversation, into this message, so he can speak the truth to us in love as well. But I just want to pray over what could be a pretty uh, sensitive subject. So let's pray. Lord, speaking the truth uh, can be a difficult thing. It can go 
poorly uh, if we don't do it in the right way. And so we want to learn from your word this morning, the word where you speak truth to us, God, how we can balance speaking truth with doing it in love, Lord. You've called us to this just like you did with Nathan. So we dedicate our morning to you and this time now we have together. Would you go before us in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, now we can't understand 2 Samuel 12 without first going back one chapter to chapter 11. Really, these two chapters are all a part of the same story. So if you would, just flip back one page, look at chapter 11, and I just need to point out a couple of things. Uh, Of course, if you're familiar with this part of the Bible, this may in fact be one of the most famous stories in the entire Old Testament, particularly famous in David's life, and we know it mostly as the story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, look at how chapter 11 starts in verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, what do you think the writer wants us to notice there? He wants us to notice that David's presence in Jerusalem at this time was unusual. He should have been with his army, and yet he decided to stay back. Of course, we know what happens next. David, with all this time to kill on his hands, is, finds himself on the top of his roof taking a walk or something, and he looks down below him, and below him he spots this beautiful woman taking a bath in another house. And he summons his servant and tells him to go bring that woman to him. And the woman is brought, Bathsheba is brought to him, David sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. And David goes, "Uh uh-oh, well, I better come up with a plan. And so he comes up with what he thinks is this brilliant cover-up plan, right? He sends for Uriah, which is Bathsheba's husband, who, by the way, just happens to be one of his most loyal warriors in the entire army, who, by the way, just happens to be fighting on behalf of David right now. He sends for him, brings him home, and tries to trick him into sleeping with his wife so that Uriah will think the baby is his. Unfortunately, and this is really an interesting way to read chapter 11 because I think it's a juxtaposition between Uriah and David. Unfortunately for David, Uriah, unlike him, was a man of integrity at this time. There was a law that said men who were fighting in the army couldn't go and sleep with their wives. I mean, it was just a part of what they wouldn't do. And so Uriah is like sleeping out front of David's house. He won't even go home. I mean, talk about integrity and honor. So David's like, well, i got to come up with plan B. And plan B, I mean, ugh, you know the story, right? With his own hand, Uriah delivers a letter written by King David to the commander of the army, Joab, telling Joab to put Uriah at the front of the next battle, a suicide mission, in fact, because he wants him dead. And Uriah is killed, and so often I go, that's tragic, but think even bigger than that. There are hundreds of other men that are killed from that decision, fathers and husbands who die in that battle. And for me, the worst part of it all is that David thinks he's gotten away with it. He actually wants to get away with this, right? But look at the very last sentence at the end of chapter 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We call that foreshadowing. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. David is like convinced this incident is closed. I did it. But it ain't closed. God needs to address this abuse of power. I mean, so often we talk about chapter 11, it's about adultery. It's not about 
any of those. Those are the outworkings of this abuse of power that David exerts as the king. And God needs to address that because as Charles Spurgeon once said, this is brilliant, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. You learned that about God yet? God does not allow his children to sin successfully, so enter Nathan. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's pause. There's so much in this little sentence, and I know I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd here, but I really want to point out something to you that's so cool. I don't want you to miss. There is no accident that the writer uses the word sent in that, in that verse right there, because if you look back in chapter 11, what we see over and over again, as David is abusing his power, he is sending people to do his bidding. He sent the army to fight the battle for him. He sent the servant to get Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah and brings him back. He sends Uriah back out to the battle to have him killed. I mean, this is a guy with power and he is using it and abusing it. People are doing his bidding and he thinks he's gotten away with it. Six months, in fact, have passed since the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. But what I love is that God's about to do some sending of his own. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Isn't that cool? God does not allow his children to sin successfully. God sends Nathan, and like many of the unsung heroes we're looking at together this summer, we don't know a whole lot about Nathan other than what we see here and a couple other uh, mentions of his name in Scripture. But what we do know, if you're following on your notes, is that Nathan was a prophet who spoke for God. He was a prophet who spoke for God. In fact, let me just quickly mention, it was Nathan who spoke this incredible prophecy to David that God was going to establish an eternal, everlasting covenant with him that his kingdom would reign forever. And this is seen in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Read verses 12 through 14 sometime. I encourage you, it's a direct prophecy pointing to Jesus Christ who, as you know, came from the family line of David and set up this everlasting kingdom that we now live in today. It was also Nathan who got to be a part of making sure Solomon, David's son, was rightly made king as God had designed it to happen. He even got to be a part of Solomon's anointing. So would you agree that Nathan got to experience some pretty incredible moments with David, right? Some pretty high highs. He's seen some awesome stuff. Now, I'm not going to say, I'd probably say this next one isn't one of them. In fact, he's probably not looking forward to this at all. But if you're following on your notes, God calls him to speak the truth to David about his sin. To speak the truth to David about his sin. But just look at how he does it. Just look how he does this. This is brilliant. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, and everyone said, Aww. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now we got to understand, 
hearing a case like this would not have been unusual for David. He's the head of the Department of Justice, right? I mean, this is part of his job. So I I actually believe that uh, David is thinking this is a real case that Nathan is bringing before him. But what is this story really about? It's about David. Who's the poor man? Uriah. Who's the little ewe lamb? Bathsheba. And who is the rich man who showed no restraint or pity and abused his power? Now, another question. Who is the only person in the entire palace who doesn't realize that this is what that story is about? Why? Because just like happens to me, and just like happens to you, I'm willing to bet, David has become blind to his sin. He's become hardened. In fact, read his response out loud with me in verse 5 from your notes and tell me this isn't us sometimes. Hey, can you do something for me, though? Can you read this with a little bit of anger? (laughs) Ready? David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. You're good at that. (laughs) Scared me, in fact, a little. He softens it a little in verse 6. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Friends, if you're following on your notes, sometimes we can see sin in everyone but ourselves. Sometimes we can see sin in everyone but ourselves. Amen? (laughs) This is so true. But man, are we good at seeing it in other people. I mean, are you ever angry over other people's sin? You ever get outraged? You can see so clearly how they're blowing it. You just want to shake them. It's like, wake up, man! And yet, I, I wonder, do we get just as outraged by our own sin? David is blind. He's blind, and he passes judgment on this rich man without even realizing he's passing judgment on himself. David needs some help here. What does David need? He needs someone to hold up a mirror to his face. And that's exactly what God sent Nathan to do. Look at Nathan's response. Really one of the most famous statements in the entire Old Testament. Let's read it out loud in verse 7. It says, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Boom, he pulls the mirror out. You're that man. (laughs) Everyone can see it but you, David. You're the rich man. And you used and abused your power. You're the one who deserves the judgment you just decreed. The gig is up. You've been found out. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. You are the man. I bet you could have cut the air with a knife at this moment, don't you think? I mean, I'm imagining being there. I'm one of the attendants of David. I bet you all the attendants and so forth, everyone in the room is probably like, ooh. (laughs) David has literally the power. If he wanted, he could throw Nathan to the fishes right now. But Nathan's a smart guy. He just keeps talking. (laughs) 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God knows all that he's given us, and has he given us a lot, friends? Has he blessed us with every good gift? That's why the very first word in verse 9 is what? Say it. Why? Why'd you do this? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, I gave you everything you could have possibly dreamed or imagined. I would have even given you more if you would have just asked. So why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord? That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But man, I thought about this this week. David broke four of the Ten Commandments. He coveted, he lied, he committed murder, and he committed adultery. I'd say that's despising the word of the Lord. And the worst part of it, like I said for me, is that he thought he could get away with it. And he wanted to. And he might have. He might have if it weren't for God sending this unsung hero by the name of Nathan who had the courage and boldness and love to show the mirror. To show the mirror. To speak the truth in love. Nathan goes on to talk about the consequences of David's sin. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your own house. You, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight, which by the way happens with his son Absalom. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David worked real hard to cover up this thing, right? And God says it's going to be exposed. I got to say something, and maybe you'll need some time to consider this, but there is a difference between punishment for sin and the consequences of sin. Part of what's going on here, quite honestly, is punishment for sin. I mean, David is a king, and he's held to a higher standard. And so there is going to be punishment for this abuse of power he had, but some of it is simply just the natural outcomes of the consequences of sin are there consequences to our behavior are there consequences to our sin friends i mean we don't like this i mean we're like well i thought god forgives me of all my sins he does but that doesn't mean god is always going to step in and remove the consequences from our actions and our choices i mean let me just give you an example let's say i struggle with the sin of materialism And I'm like, I got to have it, I got to have it. And I'm pulling out my credit card, piling up debt, piling up debt, piling up debt. And I go to God in prayer, I realize what I've done, and I said, Lord, let me win the lottery tomorrow so I can pay off this debt. Is God going to answer that prayer most likely? No, no, no. There are going to be consequences to that sin. In fact, can I just tell you, part of repentance, his first acknowledging the consequences of our sin. It's really like the first step, right? Don't avoid it anymore. 
Don't avoid the issue. Deal with them. It might even be real painful, but deal with some of the consequences of the sin because we want to be right with God. So in that case, man, it might mean learning how to manage God's money in a wise way. I got to deal with That's repentance, taking action, taking steps towards change of attitude and behavior. That's a whole nother sermon, though. So let's get back to our story. David's at a crossroads. He's been confronted with this sin. What will be his response, do you think? Is he going to make excuses? Well, I mean, she was really hot. Is he going to deny it? Ah, It's not true. Is he going to blame others? I got all those in my bag. You? Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no explanations, no denial. Just flat out, flat out admission, total responsibility. Friends, that's repentance. In fact, if you're following on your notes, David responds to his sin with genuine repentance. If you want to know how genuine it is, I gave a little references there. Read Psalm 34 and Psalm 51 sometime. You get to see this man's true character come out, right? He pours out his heart in grade A repentance. Genuine sorrow, but a desire to change. What I love, though, is repentance isn't just a one-way thing. It's not just something we do. God responds to us when we repent. And he responds to us in such a marvelous way. Look at the rest of verse 13. Nathan replied, speaking on behalf of God, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David, as far as east is from the west, your sin has been removed. You're not going to die. By the way, why does that add it there? Because that's literally what David deserved. According to the law, he should be killed. He deserved death. But if you're following on your notes, God responds to David's repentance with forgiveness and mercy, and he will do the same with us, friends. Amen? Now, what's mercy? Such a Christianese word. What do you think of when you hear the word mercy? I just think of it as not getting what I deserve. That's mercy. David deserved death. David deserved death. God gave him mercy instead. Forgiveness and mercy. True repentance is always met with genuine forgiveness. David's sin has been removed completely. So is ours in Christ. And yet, there are still going to be consequences to his sin. And we see those in the rest of chapter 12 and honestly for the rest of his life. Now, we can learn a lot uh, from this passage. I could actually probably preach three or four messages just on these two chapters this morning. But we're talking about an unsung hero by the name of Nathan. And I want to ask us a question. What can we learn from him? And here's what I know about myself. I am blindly self-righteous sometimes. There are times in my life when I am blind. I just am. And because this is true, if you're following on your notes, we need God to send people like Nathan to speak into our lives. We need God to send people like Nathan to speak into our lives. Why? Can I flip this on a positive side? Is that because we're blind? Let me put it this way. 
Because our goal is to become like Christ. Because our goal is to become like Christ, right? I mean, that's what we're after here. That's what we're going for. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I have it wrong on your notes. It's 2 Corinthians, not 1st, if you want to change that. But these words just blow me away. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being what? Transformed into what? His image. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit that is your destination and mine if you are in Christ. You are being transformed by the work of God in your life. It's our goal. Now, have any of us reached that yet? Are you reading that verse going, yeah, that describes me. No, none of us are. We are all works in progress, so to say, aren't we? We're all works in progress, but I just got to tell you, if you are in Christ, if you, his new life has been birthed in you, that you've received the gift of life uh, through his death and resurrection, then God is at work in you. Your goal, your destination is to be being transformed into the image of Jesus, to, to become Christ-like. Now, the problem in my life, I don't know about yours, is that I get tripped up a lot. I get tripped up a lot in this transformation process through things like sin, but through things also like hard-heartedness, through things like self-deception. You know, the only time David really cared about sin was when? When it was in someone else's life. When Nathan told him about that, he erupts with rage. He could see sin in others, but he couldn't see the sin in his own life. And that's true of all of us. We can see it in our spouse. We can see it in our children, we can see it in our parents, we can see it in our brothers and sisters, we can see it in our friends, we can see it in our church leaders. You can see it right now. We can see it in our government officials. And we talk about it, and we tell others about it, we complain about it, but the only thing we can't see sometimes is our own. We're blind to our own sin, but listen, Here's what God did to help us with this stuff. God put us, he's a genius. He put us in a community with other people who are on the same journey, who are running the same race, and who hopefully have the same goal. And part of being community together is learning how to speak to one another the truth in love. Hopefully it's done out of a heart of you know, humility, but we take the risk with one another, friends. We do. We take the risk because we are on the same race. We're running the same race, and if you're like me, you need people at times in your life to come alongside of you and say, listen, I got to tell you about this thing. You might not be able to see it right now. The Bible calls this literally speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4. Read it. Paul, Paul writes about this, and he says the purpose of speaking the truth of love is because God uses it to help us grow, to help us mature, to help us reach this goal of Christ's likeness. I mean, have you experienced the truth of this? People coming alongside of you? Have you? No? Pastor Gary uh, has a great story about this. If you don't know Pastor Gary, he was the pastor uh, before Jeff became the pastor. Just an awesome guy, and he has a great story about this. I asked him if he would be willing to share it with us this morning, and he wrote it out, and I'm going to read it. So this is Gary. 
1969, we had resigned from the first church we served in Harlan, Iowa, which Janie and I have sometimes referred to as our honeymoon church, and had accepted a call to Ridgeview Baptist Church in Danville, Illinois. As the months went by, we missed the people in Harlan, and not only that, the people at Ridgeview weren't responding as well as we had hoped. One Sunday, a lady in the church asked if she could make an appointment to see me. I knew immediately that something must be wrong because this lady would typically just drop by, no appointment needed. When she walked into my office the day of the appointment, I could see she was nervous. Her hands were literally shaking. She had hardly gotten seated when she blurted out, Oh, pastor, this is the hardest thing I have ever done, but God told me I must do this. My mind was racing all over the terrible things she could be referring to. As she continued, Pastor, listen to these words. You love the people in the church back in Iowa, but you don't love us. Though I had prided myself in loving people, I knew in a nanosecond she was telling the truth. In fact, I knew that was the reason things weren't going very well, and I said to her, thank you, Thelma, thank you for having the courage to come and tell me. I didn't realize it, but what you just said I know is true. As painful as it was to hear, I knew it was the truth, and I knew how I could correct it. I mean, that's a great example of what we're talking about here, isn't it? Unfortunately, I'm willing to bet that not all of us have experienced that good of an example in our lives. I bet you many of us here this morning have grown up in a church, we grew up maybe in a family where the truth was spoken and it was shoved down our throats with no love. On the flip side of that, I'm going to say, I think us in the younger generation, I still include myself in that, we were loved and loved and loved that no one is willing to tell us the truth because they're afraid it might hurt our self-esteem. As Christians, Christ calls us to have a balance of these two things, speaking the truth and love to one another, just like Nathan did. In fact, as we continue to redefine who a hero is in God's eyes, here's the conclusion I come to us uh, with this morning. I would say we can learn from this story that a hero, if you're following, a hero is a person who by faith answers God's call to speak and receive the truth in love. Speak and receive the truth in love. Listen, as important as it is to learn how to speak the truth in love, we better also be learning to be people who can receive it. Amen? I mean, that's the miracle of this story in my mind. David's receiving of Nathan's truth-telling. It's amazing. His heart breaks. No excuses. No denial. Just flat out, I have sinned against the Lord. Proverbs 27, 6 says this. Let's read this out loud together. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you believe that? David believed it, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't always believe it. My first gut instinct when someone is coming to speak the truth and to love me isn't, thanks for being faithful. I'm just saying. Sometimes it hurts. In fact, the problem is that we've begun to buy into this lie. And I think it's this, if you're following there, we tend to avoid this. We tend to avoid speaking the truth in love or receiving it. Why? Because of two things, in my opinion. Either fear or pride. We avoid this like the plague because of fear or pride. We are afraid of confronting someone because of what it might mean in our relationship with them, yeah? Yeah? I mean, if I go do this, 
X, Y, and Z could happen. And so what we do is we have redefined love to mean turning a blind eye. I just hope somebody else will do it, or I hope eventually they notice. Friends, love in the biblical idea of agape love is not turning a blind eye. You know what that is? That's enablement. Love is being willing to speak the truth to someone. I got to tell you, I'm an avoider because of this thing. Uh, On the flip side of that, we see someone like David. We have someone come to us, and we're just blind to our sin. We're blind to our action. We're blind to whatever it is they're coming to, uh, to speak to us. And we've developed what I call, this is, I'm going to patent this, the pride stiff arm. You, you, do you know what I'm talking about? My wife comes to me and says, hey, the way you talk to the kid, boom, well, you just talked to them like that the other day. Hey, we, we really uh, wanted to come and say, talk to the hand. Pride stiff arm, man. Why? Why do we do that? Because we're all wearing masks. We all want people to believe that the life we live is this shiny, clear, clean, and we don't want them to see below the surface because we'll be ashamed. Comes back to fear. So, let me ask you again. I don't spend this time, much time on a message usually talking about why something is important. But let me ask you again. Is it important to have people who are willing to come and speak the truth and love to us? Is it important that we become those kind of people? Why? Because we are all on the same goal, the same journey of becoming like Christ. So if that's true, let me spend the rest of our time this morning talking about how. How we can do this in a Christ-honoring way. Don't check out right now. Don't leave this room thinking, i got to go speak the truth without hearing how to do that first. Number one, make sure that God is really sending us Make sure God is really sending us. Listen, it's one thing to speak the truth to someone. It's a totally different thing to speak the truth to them when you know God is the one sending you to do it. Unfortunately, I bet you every one of us in this room have experienced the difference between those two. There are people right now, I am scared to death, who are sitting in this room thinking, yes, I get to go home today and give it to her, man. The pastor's giving me permission I'm just speaking truth, honey. If that's your attitude, stop. Don't. That is exactly not what we're talking about this morning. Let me have you ask yourself a question every time you're about to go speak the truth. What is your motivation in doing it? Are you motivated for yourself? Or truly are you motivated out of a love for that other person? Are you motivated for yourself or out of a love for that other person? The text we read is clear. Who sent Nathan? The Lord sent Nathan. He doesn't go on his own initiative. He went because God sent him. How does Nathan know he's supposed to go? Because he's listening to God. How do we listen to God today? We talked about this several weeks ago. How do we listen to God today? Through Scripture and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Through Scripture and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So, two great questions to ask yourself every time you think God may be sending you to speak the truth. You might want to write these on the back of your notes. I think they're that important. Are, is this an issue of Scripture? Is this an issue of Scripture? And number two, or is this a clear issue that is keeping this person from Christ-like character? 
Those are two great questions. Is this an issue of Scripture that I need to address, or is this an issue that's keeping this person from Christ-like character? If it's an issue of personal preference, you probably shouldn't go. Or at least the Lord's probably not sending you. Not all the time. Not all the time. Now for Nathan, this is a clear-cut issue, right? The thing David had done displeased the Lord, so I'll ask you, let's do our little questions. Was it a biblical issue? I think breaking four of the Ten Commandments qualifies. Was it an issue of David not being able to fill the Christ-like, uh, be transformed into Christ-like character? No, totally. He's hiding his sin. He's living in this lie. So yeah, let's take the example of our drama. Great example for us to consider here. Let's ask those two questions. Is it an issue of Scripture? Should that other guy go confront his friend? What do you think? Scriptural issue? Parents, do not exasperate your children, Paul writes. I think there's some exasperating going on. I mean, what's exasperating? I mean, it's just like tearing them down. He's tearing them down. The second question is, is there a clear issue of Christ-like character going on there? There's a flaw going on. Oh, did you hear him say there's only two Christians on the entire team? What kind of witness is that? So yeah, he should go. He needs to talk to his friend. And by the way, I've got to be clear about this. We are talking right now this morning only about how we relate to one another as Christians, as Christ followers. This is not a message about how we speak truth in this world today, although we could learn some stuff. There's a difference between how we approach that. That's another message. Number two, and this is a big one today, make sure it is done face-to-face. Make sure it is done face-to-face. It's big today, isn't it? Nathan had personal contact with David. He came to him personally, face to face. We live in an age today of email, text, Facebook, Twitter, notes. It's so easy to sit back and take pot shots at people. In fact, I'm just going to put on my little Cherry Hills pastor hat right now. Almost every Sunday we get anonymous notes of people speaking truth about something they didn't like something we did wrong, and the truth is sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's true, but is it speaking the truth in love to send an anonymous note? No. No. It might be speaking truth, but man, do it face to face, and, and we want to hear it. <laughs> we want to get better. We want to grow. Jesus has something to say about this, I think, didn't he? And perhaps the most famous passage in the entire Bible about how we do this with one another. Matthew 18, he says in verse 15 these words, if your brother or sister sins, do what? Shoot a text? No, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Don't send an email. Show your face so you can show your heart. There can be so much miscommunication in other forms. So Jesus sets the standard. Nathan followed it. Number three, we should speak with courage and boldness. Courage and boldness. Nathan has some serious courage. We've already talked about this, right? I mean, the king could have ended his life if he had so chosen. Does it still take courage today to go and speak the truth to someone? Oh, man, does it. It takes big-time courage because you, they might not like what you're about to say. In fact, I can almost guarantee they're not going to like. I, I, I have rarely had someone, after I've come and spoken the truth to them, even in love, say, thank you so much. I appreciated you pointing out that lack of character in my life. 
Now, why do you think we call them blind spots? Because we don't want to see them. I don't. I don't want to see them. So listen, your kids might say, you don't really love me. Your spouse, your friends, whoever might fling it right back in your face, right? The pride stiff arm. Well, now that we're on the subject, you jerk, how about... I'm not kidding. This happens. Now, should that keep us from avoiding it? No, just because we don't know the outcome doesn't mean we should avoid it, but we do it. Why? Because God has joined us together as a Christian community. For what purpose? To become like Christ. We are protective, collectively pursuing that goal. And so my longing for you and your longing for me is to see us complete the race that God has set before us. And so that's why we go. We go and we speak the truth in love. Friends, tell me that's not true. When you really love someone, you don't turn a blind eye because you want to see them grow and mature, right? If you're a parent, do you want to see your kids grow and mature? Yeah, because you love them. And sometimes that's going to require speaking the truth in love courageously and boldly. But let me be quick to balance that with number four. We should also speak with tact and humility. Tact, T-A-C-T. And humility. Tell me, when you read this story, that Nathan doesn't just like put on a clinic of how to do this. It is incredible, man. You gotta, don't you think he like prepared for this conversation? He's like, I've got it. I'm going to tell a parable because I'm going to help David see his sin for himself. And man, he tells this amazing story. David can't even see it coming. Nathan doesn't just breeze into David's life. They've had a past history, a relationship, and then they move on. No, he's there. And he speaks with this amazing tact. What do I mean by tact? It's not my own word, I have to confess. I got that from Rick Warren. And he defines tact like this. I love this. Tact is making a point without making an enemy. It is attacking the problem rather than attacking the person. We could use some tact today, couldn't we? Proverbs 12, 18 describes what tact is and what it isn't. Let's read this out loud. It says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's the difference. But just as important as tact is, so also is humility. In fact, I'm going to just tell you, if you're going to be a person who speaks the truth in love, this is the most important thing, the most important quality, the most important characteristic you can carry with you. Humility. Humility. There was no gloating or superiority in Nathan. Do you think years later, Nathan holds this over David's head and is like, remember that time when you did... Because Nathan is just like David. He realizes he is on the way to. He is being transformed. He needs people in his life to speak the truth as well. This reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke 6. Look at the screen. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, does Jesus excuse us from taking specks out of each other's eyes there? I used to think that. No. All he's saying is, before you go do that, which you're called to do, you better examine your own life. In humility, you better acknowledge and examine the logs that are keeping you from the kind of transformation that you want Friends, wouldn't you agree when someone approaches you with that kind of attitude, it's a lot easier to take? 
man, I'm coming to you. I just got to acknowledge, man, I'm not perfect in any way. In fact, I'm struggling with this right now, but because I love you, I want to say, wouldn't that be a lot easier to hear? In fact, here's a little litmus test. Every time you think God is sending you to speak the truth to someone, I mean this. If you are looking forward to doing it, (laughs) do not go. (laughs) Let that sink in. If you're looking forward to it, don't go. You got something to deal with first. Now, I hate doing this stuff. Believe it or not, I don't know what you think of me, but I hate this stuff. I hate it. I avoid it. But I've also learned that I need it. And if I need it, others need it. And so I've tried to learn, even though I don't do it perfectly, how can I speak the truth to someone because I really love them? And that's the last thing we can learn from Nathan is that along with those things, truth speaking should be done with comfort and forgiveness. Nathan doesn't just walk away after saying, you're the man. He offers words of comfort and assurance and forgiveness. He points to who? God. I love how Matt Woodley says, modern day truth tellers should be prepared to do the same thing. Point us back to the cross. Say, look at what Christ has done. Look at his mercy in the midst of our mess. They never leave us feeling heavy hearted and oppressed by guilt and condemnation. Actually, they lead us into repentance. Amen to that. In fact, if you read the rest of chapter 12, at the very end, God sends Nathan back to David, this time to deliver a message of comfort and hope. They're going to have a son together, Bathsheba and him. Name him Jedidiah, which means beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. Now, i got to say before we end, we're running out of time, but real quick, it's not always going to have a happy ending. It ain't. In fact, we have an extended family situation going on right now where truth has been spoken most of the time in love, and it's unresolved. And you've probably experienced friendships have been broken from this kind of thing, but it can't stop us. I've had a number of Nathans in my life, friends, and I can tell you honestly, I've never liked hearing from them. But I know that their motivation is pure and our goal is the same and so I receive it. We have a saying here on staff. i got to tell you the last 10%. And I hate it when someone comes into my office and says those words. And yet I also receive it because I know their motivation is a heart of love. So as we close, here are two questions I want us to consider. First, if you're following, who is my Nathan? Who is my Nathan? When is the last time a Nathan came to your door? Can you name a person? Do you have a picture in your mind right now? Or are they afraid? Are they afraid to come to you because you've mastered the stiff arm? You pushed him away so many times. Friends, I would call a Nathan today an accountability partner. Do you have someone in your life who you can be completely honest with and vice versa? They can speak the truth to you and you know deep down their motivation is love. It's love. They want to see you grow. In my experience, I think even though a husband and wife can play that role for each other, that can also sometimes lead to problems. Perhaps a man needs another man to be able to speak like that in his life, and a woman needs another woman. And the last question is, who is God calling me to be a Nathan to? Listen, are you sitting here right now, and God is bringing a picture of a person in your mind that is heading down a cliff right now, and you've been standing by in the name of love, being all sweet and non-judgmental, because that's what you think love is. But let me just ask you an even harder question. Do you love them enough to speak the truth to them? Close your Bibles. 
Do whatever you need to do. We're going to give ourselves just a minute here of reflection as Michelle plays. There is a lot going on here this morning. As I told you, this is sensitive. So we just want you to spend a moment with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is ministering in this room. Use this as an opportunity to pray, Lord, who is a Nathan? Have I had some that I've offended? Forgive, ask God, confess about that. If you don't have any, pray for one. If someone comes to your mind, maybe you need to take the initiative. And on the other side, Lord, who is someone that you might be calling me to speak the truth and love to and I've been avoiding out of fear? Pray for God to strengthen you, give you wisdom on how to say it and what to say. So we give you this time right now. Now I want to invite the members of our prayer team to come forward. And would you keep your heads bowed and let me pray for us as we close this morning? Lord, every one of us in this room confess that we are blind sometimes and that we need people like Nathan to step into our life. We thank you for knitting us together in community. Help us to be the kind of people who can speak the truth and receive it in love. Help us to model your example, Lord. You have always spoken the truth to us. You've exposed us. You've comforted us. And you've done it in an amazing way in love. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Let, us that, let that be our model to follow as we leave this room this morning. May our conversations be seasoned with salt and grace, and may we find the balance of truth and love that Jesus displayed. Help us to be your people who are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray these things together in his great name. Amen. If you need anybody to pray with you this morning, we will be waiting down front. Otherwise, God bless you. I pray that you have a great week. You're dismissed.